Welcome to the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine, Dona e this is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope-colored glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 5. Thus says the Lord. In this episode, we'll continue our tour through the Old Testament as part of our 12th episode world-building series meant to help explain Catholic Christianity and the stories and cultures that left their mark on it before we start on papal history proper in episode 13. Feel free to skip ahead to there or wherever if you already know the difference between a chalice and a cilice, unless you're one of my first listeners and that's not out yet. Fear not, it's coming soon, June 29th, the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul. Now, as I've said before and will say again, just because we're talking Bible doesn't mean the content of this episode is appropriate for all ages. Also, this is in no way a careful, comprehensive, or reverent summary. Rather, this tour is meant to be a way to help get everyone on the same page before we start with papal history. As you've also heard before, I'll be skipping plenty, and I promise you I will fail to reflect in any meaningful way on the significance these psalms and stories and whatnot have outside this podcast's narrowly defined lens of Catholic Christianity. Nothing against anyone. I'd just like to get talking about popes sometime. We'll see how I do. With that out of the way, in general, the prophets walked around telling bad kings that they were being bad, telling mixed bad kings that they were being bad, and telling good kings that they were being bad. Now, they did this not only as themselves, but as basically mouthpieces, spokesmen for God. So it was kind of a don't-shoot-the-messenger thing, but, as you can imagine, the prophets did get shot. Well, not shot per se, but, like, thrown down wells and stuff. Now, except for a brief mention of the canonically wicked Ahab and his canonically wicked wife Jezebel, I skipped over the rulers of the Northern Kingdom last episode in an effort to save space. But I would be remiss if I didn't cover the Twelve Minor Prophets, since each of them have a whole darn book of the Bible dedicated to them. The Minor Prophets Starting with the Minor Prophet, who had the biggest cultural impact on Catholic Christianity, there's Jonah, who didn't want to be a prophet and tell the king in question he was bad because he figured he'd get killed or something, so he bravely ran away. In response, God had a whale eat him, which he managed to survive, and the whale spat him out again after three days, at which point Jonah went ahead and did his profiting, which, much to his surprise, was highly successful with sackcloth, that is, uncomfortable clothing made from coarse animal hair, and ashes, 
classic signs of repentance, being ordered for the whole city of Nineveh, including the animals. So God relents and spares them. Moving on with the rest of the minor prophets, now in chronological order, there's Joel, then Amos, then Hosea, then Micah, then Nahum, then Zephaniah, then Habakkuk, then Obadiah, then Haggai, then Zechariah, then Malachi. And that's the minor prophets. What? I said they were minor. Look, if you want more detail, uh, Amos has locusts and Zechariah has the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, go check out Sunday School Dropouts. They have a whole episode for each. That's my recommendation for the week. You'd think that with the minor prophets addressed for our purposes, we'd go ahead and go through the major prophets. But you'd be wrong, at least at this point, because several of the most significant prophets in the whole of the Old Testament aren't counted as either major or minor prophets because they don't have their own Bible books, including Samuel and Nathan, along with two others we haven't touched on yet because they were active in the northern kingdom. The prophets, Elijah and Elisha. We do have some mutual acquaintances, though. Remember Ahab and Jezebel, the possible parents of Queen Athaliah of Judah, the one who were told one about murdering her family and died trying to kill her grandson? Well, they're in charge of the northern kingdom of Israel when a man named Elisha the Tishbite walks up and tells them that they need to worship the Lord, not the pagan god Baal or anyone else, dang it. Now, this is going to be a problem, because getting the northern kingdom to worship Baal is like the main pet project for Queen Jezebel. But Elijah doesn't back down. He promises that there will be a multi-year drought, and because he's a prophet, the drought and the accompanying famine begins. Elijah proceeds to hide out in the wilderness, presumably both because God told him to, and because laying low for a while is generally a good call when you've angered the queen and been the bearer of especially bad news to boot. While he's hiding out in the wilderness, ravens bring him bread and meat every morning and every evening. Now, this isn't actually the first time we've seen a raven flying around a world that's in the process of drying out. A footnote in BibleGateway.com's NIV translation pointed me to Genesis chapter 8, verse 7, which describes Noah releasing a raven to check and see if any land has appeared yet after the flood. Is that connection important? Not for our purposes, but evidently it was important enough for someone to write it down. And honestly, there are plenty of layers like this when you're studying scripture, and there's plenty of analysis and commentary on every word and every bit of these sacred texts. There are also plenty of intentional nods to details we might consider obscure if we hadn't read the Bible eight billion times. This one might be one, and it might not, but these nods are absolutely a tradition that carries on into Christianity. For example, when St. Anthony the Great and St. Paul of Thebes are hanging out in the desert and a raven brings them bread to sustain them, that is 100% a these men are like Elijah moment, even though Elijah isn't named. 
Hence why I decided to start a history of the popes with several hours, possibly days, of crash course in the Old Testament. You're welcome. Now, the raven is only taking care of Elijah's food needs. It doesn't turn into a raven's bigot and give him water. He gets that from a nearby spring, which, given that Elijah is hiding out in the spot that God sent him to and God sending him his daily raven bread, you'd think that spring would keep flowing right on through the drought. Well, turns out you'd be wrong. The spring stops flowing. So, Elijah packs up, find a widow, God says he's instructed to feed Elijah. But when Elijah arrives, apparently the widow hadn't checked her voicemail, because she didn't have any food for Elijah. In her defense, she probably didn't have a voicemail, and she also didn't have any food for herself. Quote, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. End quote. Elijah tells her not to worry, to just make him a little loaf of bread anyways, promising she won't run out of flour or oil. And since this is the promise of a prophet, that's exactly what happens. And this supernatural stretching of provisions is something we'll see again prominently in both Judaism and Christianity. Now, this has been a miracle-heavy few paragraphs. And, oh boy, are we far from done. Because at some point, the widow's son falls ill and dies. And Elijah resurrects him from the dead. Now, if you're coming into this knowing anything about Christianity, odds are that you know that the idea of resurrection comes up. We'll get to that resurrection in a few weeks. For now, we've got a surprisingly high total of three resurrections to cover today. The widow is thrilled. Not thrilled? King Ahab. When the prophesied three years of drought had passed, Elijah rocked up and told him to gather up the prophets of Baal for a pray-off. Baal versus the Lord. And Elijah would spot Baal 449 prophets. Ahab liked those odds, and the 450 prophets of Baal were gathered for the pray-off. The rules were fairly straightforward. Prepare everything for a bonfire, then light it with divine intervention. You'll never guess how it went. Okay, you got it. No fire for Team Baal, big fire for the Lord. The next part might be a bit more surprising, because Elijah has the people who had gathered to watch kill the prophets of Baal to show their love of the Lord and their hatred of idolatry that is, the worship of false gods. Then, it rains at last. But all the problems aren't over, because Queen Jezebel had been planning to use those 450 prophets of Baal to get Samaria to worship Baal, and now they are dead, so we'll not be helping with that. And it's a lot of work to do on our own, especially now that the people have warmed back up to the Lord. As a side note, this all went down on Mount Carmel, which actually has a pretty direct link to the Catholic religious order called the Carmelites. In fact, in the Middle Ages, it was claimed that priests and prophets, Jewish and then Christians, had lived on Mount Carmel since the time of Elijah. This is almost certainly not true, but it's way too perfect for the background matters thesis that I've adopted to justify these episodes for me to skip. 
Speaking of callbacks to mountains sanctified by the holy men of old, Elijah's next stop as he flees Jezebel is Mount Horeb, a.k.a. the Mountain of God, where Moses had seen the specifically not burning bush and had caught a glimpse of God's own derriere. To be clear, technically, the specifically not burning bush is listed as Mount Horeb, while the derriere thing was on Mount Sinai. But it seems most scholars consider them likely the same place, and that's easier to describe, so that's what I'm going with here. In any event, we're here for much the same reason we were at Samuel's calling. This passage, too, has left a huge mark on how Christians approach discernment. Let's go ahead and start reading it. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9b. And yes, sometimes verses are subdivided into A, B, etc. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. End quote. God, you see, is often found in the small, quiet things, like the voice of conscience in the heart. That's how I read this passage anyways, and I'm certainly not alone. Elijah is alone, though, but not for long, because in this conversation, God tells Elijah to do two things that have an impact on our story. Anoint Elisha as his successor. Elisha is easily confused with, though not to be confused with, Elijah. And to anoint Jehu as king of Israel. Now, Elijah wastes no time anointing Elisha. That starts in the next verse. By the end of the paragraph, Elisha has killed the oxen he had been plowing his field with when Elijah rocked up and cooked them using the plowing equipment as fuel, and then he followed Elijah off. But we don't see Jehu mentioned again for a good long while. In fact, 11 chapters go by before Jehu comes back into frame. During that time, King Ahab does more bad, and Elijah passes him a note from God saying he's been bad. Literally the worst king. So God's going to smite him. Guess how that goes over. <laughs> well, actually, Ahab listens. Yep, he repents. It's another Jonah moment, as Ahab puts on sackcloth and fasts. I promise this isn't usually how this goes, as we'll see, but it just so happens that the only minor prophet story I really had to tell, Jonah had this, and so does Elijah. And not to muddy things, 
but Jonah actually came after Elijah. I'll be chronological for the rest of the prophets. I just wanted to get the minor prophets out of the way, frankly. In any event, yes, Ahab repents. But Ahab has a problem. Despite God nominally relenting in response to Ahab humbling himself, the next chapter walks through how God has told all the prophets to lie to Ahab so that he'll go to his death, which he does, succeeded by his son, Ahaziah. But by now, the story has jumped ahead three years, so maybe Ahab did some more bad off-screen in the meantime. But considering one of God's commandments is, Thou shalt not lie, it's still an odd story to find in the Bible. And I tell it to you, because in addition to my main podcast goal of entertaining you, and my secondary goal of helping you learn, I have a third goal, pointing out things that are overlooked, at times intentionally. I definitely learned about Ahab in Sunday school, and beyond, but that content was really limited to how he was a bad king, led on by his even worse wife, Jezebel. After all, 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 25 through 26 says, There was never anyone like Ahab, who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife, he behaved in the vilest manner, by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. But the popular summaries tend to miss that Ahab repents in the next verse, and they also tend to miss the prophets being told to lie to Ahab to lure him to his death. And they tend to miss what happens after Jehu is anointed king of Israel. Though we've got to finish off Elijah and two whole other kings of Israel before we can get to that. Now, King Ahaziah goes easily. He falls and gets injured, and then he honks off Elijah by checking with other prophets for their prognosis first, which, well, don't get Elijah angry at you right before you have him prophesy about you, because Elijah is usually right. So, Ahaziah dies, and he is succeeded by his brother, Joram, another one of Ahab's sons. It's Elijah's turn next. Now, Elijah is a bamf, and if you don't know that term, I'll let you know the M stands for mother. So, he's not just going to die a quiet death. I mean, right before this, he killed over a hundred dudes by sarcastically raining down fire from heaven on their heads because they tried to talk with him. But it's Elijah's turn to embrace the fire this time going up into heaven. Specifically, it's time for the chariots of fire. Yes, Elijah, much like Enoch before him, and Jesus Christ after, is taken up into heaven, rather than simply dying. And boy, oh boy, is chariots of fire ever an evocative phrase. No wonder it's stuck around in the popular imagination, and it makes it into most condensed versions of the Bible. Elisha will take it from here, and there will be lingering questions through the ages about whether Elijah might return, questions that become phrased as when Elijah will return, 
after the prophet Malachi indicates Elijah will indeed return, which is why Jesus gets asked about it centuries later. Now, picking the thread back up with Elisha, he kicks off his ministry by having two bears maul 42 youth because they poked fun at his baldness. Elijah, I'm sure, would be proud. And now, at long last, it is finally time for Jehu to be anointed king of Israel, much to the chagrin of the current king of Israel, Joram, son of Ahab. Now, that son of Ahab bit really comes into play, because Elisha's command to Jehu at his anointing is to destroy all of Ahab's descendants, a project which Jehu dives into with gusto, starting with killing King Joram himself, then having old Queen Jezebel thrown out of a tower, then offing 70 sons of Ahab, and literally piling up their skulls. Soon, Jehu comes across some poor souls that self-identify as relatives of Ahaziah, meaning relatives of Ahab, since Ahaziah was Ahab's son. That passage in particular is a trip. Quote, Take them alive, he, that is Jehu, ordered. So they took them alive and slaughtered them by the well of Beth-Eked, 42 of them. He left no survivor. End quote. So much for taking them alive, I guess. Then, not to pile on, but man, there's plenty to unpack here. Then Jehu calls all the priests of Baal together under the pretense that he's totally going to worship Baal, so they should all come together for a big Baal-loving shindig. Then he has them all killed. Now, of course, God doesn't sit idly by when there's all this breaking of his fifth and eighth commandments. No, sir. He actively applauds. Quote, The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. End quote. 2 Kings, chapter 10, verse 30. All right. With God's seal of approval on that work of, again, genociding the family of a man who, again, had repented, Let's wrap up our discussion of Ahab and his holy adversaries with some final thoughts. First, I don't want you to think I'm ignoring the problems with Ahab and Jezebel. They had a whole lot of people killed. But still, it's alarming how sympathetic a figure Ahab in particular is otherwise in the Bible's account. Every detail that's bad is remembered and taught. Every other detail, and there are many, makes Ahab look very human, and again, very sympathetic. I'm not going to call him Saint Ahab, but far be it from me to assume that that isn't his proper title at this point, going off the full story rather than the simple summary. It's certainly a much cleaner story to just call Ahab the most wicked of all and move on, rather than to see all the difficult-to-explain shenanigans of God and his prophets we see in this narrative arc especially. Second, did I need to tell you sympathetic details about Ahab and frankly disturbing things about Elisha and Elisha for the purpose of Catholic world building? Probably not. Frankly, 
If any of the folks we talk about have a take on these folks that differs from Ahab as bad and Elijah and Elisha are good, that'd be shocking. So those standard takeaways are what do the world building. But in case it wasn't clear by now, in the end, despite my stated goal, I'm not just telling you these stories for their educational slash world building purposes. Even though that is the primary justification for this particular series, I'm also not just telling you these things to entertain you, even though that's the main purpose of this podcast. I'm also telling you some things because I have specific opinions on them, and I think they need to be better known and understood. This is dangerous territory for me since, and I cannot emphasize this enough, I am neither a theologian nor historian. I'm not a Bible specialist or anything. But occasionally, I come across something often overlooked that strikes me that I think may strike you. And I mean, look, I have a podcast. I'm not exactly the type to keep my thoughts to myself. So Ahab practically took over my planned Elijah slash Elisha section, and he nearly became a spin-off episode of his own. Frankly, if he had any meaningful connection to the papacy, that's exactly what would have happened. But instead, he stays here and he makes this episode longer. But we do need to wrap up Elisha before we can get to the major prophets. And it's certainly true that, like Elijah, Elisha did a lot more than harass Ahab and his family, despite my recent focus. In fact, by all accounts, Elisha actually performed more miracles than Elijah, up to and including that really neat rising from the dead one that will be such a hit among Christians down the road. As a matter of fact, he raises two people from the dead, once after he himself had died, when a corpse is accidentally dropped and ends up touching Elijah's bones. Then it springs back to life. By the way, if you've heard about Catholics keeping bits of bodies of saints around and using them to hopefully call down miracles, and ever wondered if those relics were a Bible thing? The whole Elisha's bones resurrection thing is a pretty relevant passage. Alright, with Elijah chilling out in heaven post-chariots of fire, and with Elisha buried, hopefully more thoroughly this time since a randomly dropped corpse should not have been able to touch his bones. Anyways, with Elisha also not scheduled to perform any more miracles, it's time to move on to my favorite prophet. The prophet Isaiah. And we are indeed moving, as Isaiah takes us back south to Judah, where we walked through the full list of kings earlier, and a few generations down our timeline, to just before Assyria destroyed Samaria and threatened Judah. And, oh yes, those happenings feature heavily in Isaiah's story. Now, there is some question of what Isaiah's story specifically is, because for a long time, biblical scholars have been theorizing that it is the work of multiple authors, only one of them, at most, being the eponymous prophet. The most popular division presents chapters 1 through 39 as likely the work of Isaiah himself, with chapters 40 through 54 being the work of another author writing centuries later, and with chapters 55 through 66 being the work of yet another author writing later still. 
loosely the first half, that's chapters 1 through 33, are predicting God's judgment for Israel and her neighbors, while the second half, chapters 34 to 66, approaches this judgment as something that's already been carried out, with the more hopeful tone now, looking forward to a restoration. Now, that shift in tone is something that would be familiar to anyone studying Isaiah throughout history. So if you want your basic necessary takeaway for Isaiah, here. It's that it starts with warnings of bad consequences for bad actions, and it ends with promises of good to come as a result of good actions, with the Assyrian invasion as the turning point. That stuff about different authors, on the other hand, is a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, if you will, that won't really come into play until the 20th century, in the grand scheme of papal history as a drop in the bucket. The same holds for pretty much all textual criticism of the Bible, by the way, which is not to say people didn't study Isaiah and notice things before the light bulb. One thing they definitely noticed was Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Quote, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. End quote. For what it's worth, Emmanuel means God is with us. And of course, it helps that this particular verse is explicitly brought up in the Gospel of Matthew, which ties the virgin birth to the story of Jesus' conception to the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. Obviously, we'll be going into that in more detail. And Isaiah has a lot of passages that tend to be interpreted by Christians as promises of the Messiah, which is Hebrew for anointed one. We'll talk more about the virgin birth when we get to the New Testament in a bit, but let's go ahead and discuss the Messiah now, since Isaiah, more than any other Old Testament book, establishes that concept that's going to be critical groundwork for the specifically Christian thought in the years to come. Now, the concept of a Messiah isn't originally or exclusively a Christian concept, and is understood in a number of ways in different traditions, from Messianic Judaism to, of course, Christianity, to Islam and beyond. But it's time once again for my favorite pastime of mentioning that I am focusing on this particular topic specifically as it pertains to Catholic Christianity. Of course, even sticking to that perspective, there's still an awareness of the historical context here. The idea of a savior slash redeemer slash, in essence, superhero to come save God's people came in the context of worldly collapse at the hands of the Assyrians by the traditional timeline, according to the text, or at the hands of the Babylonians, if you're looking at this from a more modern, or one might say modernist viewpoint. And if you don't know what I mean by a modernist, well, I'll be sure to cover modernism sooner rather than later in the main show. It's a good, solid, pope-heavy topic. In any event, the people of God are in need of an earthly savior, and it makes sense that one of the most prominent features of the promised Messiah, that is, Savior, is that he comes from the house of David, because 
King David and his son Solomon were by far the most successful kings of Israel. In their day, both the northern kingdom of Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah were united together. This house of David detail comes from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. End quote. Keeping in mind that Jesse of Bethlehem was King David's father. I might not have actually mentioned that at the time, but now you know. And do keep Bethlehem in mind. It will definitely come up again. In fact, I might as well sprinkle in another messianic prophecy now. This one from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, which specifically ties the Messiah to Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. End quote. Now the earthly dimension of the Messiah is, perhaps in a way that might recall our discussions of the hypostatic union, paired with a heavenly dimension. But the hypostatic union analogy breaks down fairly quickly, because it turns out the expected earthly dimension of the Messiah is turned on its head, and just about completely subsumed by the heavenly, which is not how the hypostatic union works. Believe you me, we had church councils about this, and don't worry, we'll cover those in the main show in due course. Not-so-subtle Christology refresher aside, even though you can bet the various Catholics who will be discussing were reading Isaiah and looking ahead to Christ in every detail, especially the servant songs, even with all that, there is history to get back to. So rather than dwelling further on the Messiah concept and all the ways Christians see him foretold in the Old Testament, we should move on to Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. And so we can put this episode to bed. I do want to add one crappy audio post-production note in that if you remember the song in half note when you were talking about King Manasseh, that was in reference to Isaiah's death. So yes, the prophets are not always joyously received. Before we go, I literally got a tattoo planned referencing Isaiah 58. So let's go ahead and give a listen to my absolute favorite Bible passage of all. Quote, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion, and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right, that has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions, and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today, and expect your voice will be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves?
is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. End quote. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 10. Now, before we get on to Jeremiah, I need to note that if you're planning to take anything to prepare yourself for the true trip that is Ezekiel, you might start your audience participation now since things can take some time to take effect. I kid, I kid. Don't do drugs, folks. Don't be like Ezekiel. You'll see what I mean soon. But for now, it's time for the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine or plague but whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says. This city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon, who will capture it. End quote. Jeremiah chapter 38, verses 2 through 3. We're fast-forwarding, by the way, about another hundred years. The Assyrian invaders are in the past, and now the looming threat to the kingdom of Judah is the Babylonians. But Jeremiah sees them not so much as a threat, but as an instrument for God's will, which is not a stance that pleases King Zedekiah, who has him chucked into a muddy pit when he urges people to give up. After all, Zedekiah is trying to run a military here, and Jeremiah's doom and gloom is wicked bad for morale. Honestly, Jeremiah was on the whole more gloom than doom. In addition to the fairly obvious book of Jeremiah, he's also traditionally credited as the author of the book of Lamentations, which is just as lachrymose as it sounds, and earned him the nickname of the Weeping Prophet. Additionally, Jeremiah is traditionally credited as the author of the book, or books, of kings. Granted, surprise, surprise, this traditional view isn't accepted by most modern scholars who hold that whoever wrote Deuteronomy probably also wrote Joshua, Samuel, and Kings. I'm also going to go ahead and shoehorn a quick nod to the book of Chronicles here while I'm talking about both Samuel and Kings in the same breath, since both Samuel and Kings in the same breath is a fairly apt description of what Chronicles is. It's largely a recap and a moderate abridgment of those books, and that's why I didn't cover it separately. Also, Lamentations and Kings 
aren't the only books affiliated with Jeremiah. The Book of Baruch is traditionally written by a Jeremiah's secretary. You guessed it, Baruch. And unsurprisingly, Baruch's themes are pretty similar to Jeremiah's. Yes, bad things are happening, and they're happening because y'all are worshipping those idols, like Baal and the child-sacrifice-loving Molech, false gods, instead of Yahweh, the true god. Fortunately for Jeremiah, as we circle back to him, he doesn't stay in that muddy pit forever, but he gets taken up by a sympathetic official with King Zedekiah's covert approval. In fact, Jeremiah gets a secret audience with King Zedekiah, in which the prophet tells the king that God is handing over the kingdom and the king himself to King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and that Zedekiah should accept this punishment from God if he wants to keep his life. And so it happens. The Babylonians do to Judea what the Assyrians had done to Samaria over a hundred years before, and in 587 BC, King Solomon's temple, aka the first temple, is destroyed. Q. Lamentations. But I won't trouble you with that. We've got one more prophet to cover today, one who some traditions suggest may have been Jeremiah's son. The prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 1. Selections. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself. Also, out of the mist thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and every one had four faces, and every one had four wings, and they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, they four also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covering their bodies. The likeness was like burning coals of fire, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now, as I behold the living creatures, Behold one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures, with his four faces, and their appearance and their work were, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. As for their rings, I guess we're talking about rings now, as for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their rings were full of eyes round about them four, and when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go, and the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was inside the wheels. End quote. I wasn't shocked at all when I saw the ancient aliens guy covering Ezekiel. If there ever were an ancient account of an encounter with an alien life form in their craft, it probably sounded a lot like this. And that's just stuff from chapter 1. With 48 chapters, well, the book of Ezekiel is quite a trip. Ezekiel's commission as a prophet involves the tastiest words of the Bible. Chapter 3, quote, Then he said to me, 
Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. End quote. And what were those honey-sweet words? Quote, Lamentations, mourning, and woe. End quote. Interesting fellow, that Ezekiel. Now, in many cases, the prophets come across like proto-performance artists, such as when God instructs the early minor prophet Hosea to, quote, marry a harlot, and Hosea proceeds to name his kids so, not pitied, and not my people. Man, look, you can do performance art if that's your thing, and I definitely get that you need to make it your thing if you hear a calling from God to do it, but I definitely have feelings about those kids' names. For what it's worth, Hosea was not alone in that prophetic fad. Later, Isaiah would name his kids, quote, hurry to the spoils, end quote, and, quote, a remnant shall remain, end quote. And here, I thought name was a terrible name to give a kid. Looking at you, Noah, father of Shem. In any event, I bring up prophets as performance artists because in addition to being known for these crazy go-nuts visions, Ezekiel may well be the performance artist prophet par excellence. And I must stress again that there was a surprising amount of competition for that title. But, well, see if you think Ezekiel takes the cake. Quote, Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, three hundred and ninety days. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. End quote. Now, lying on his side for well over a year is a pretty strong submission, but does it beat Isaiah's three years of naked prophesying? And yeah, that's a thing that happened in Isaiah chapter 20, verses 2 through 4. And old King Saul, he also did the naked prophesying bit back in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 24. I know you, you need to have that visual. While I think Ezekiel's presumed year of bed sores beats Isaiah's free and loose approach, I acknowledge that it would have been an even stronger case if he'd followed God's original instructions for cooking his meals during this time. Quote, Thou shalt bake it with dung that comes out of men in their sight. End quote. But Ezekiel, understandably, draws the line here. Quote, ah, Lord God, behold, my soul hath not been polluted, for from my youth up even till now have I not eaten of that which dieth of itself, or is torn in pieces, neither came there abominable flesh into my mouth. End quote. So, God offers a compromise solution. 
Quote, then he said unto me, Lo, I have given thee cow's dung for man's dung, and thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. End quote. I think you got a taste of Ezekiel at this point. It's worth noting that all of this stuff has been from the first tenth of the book, so this is a more where that came from situation. Though, in all honesty, Ezekiel is reasonably front-loaded. There's a bit of a shift, though, as towards the end of the book, the message shifts to a promise of an eventual restoration of the temple, which has been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian forces over the course of the book. Our next prophet actually lives to see this, so tune in next time for episode 6, Exitus Reditus.